Part two of Chapter three of My Days and Dreams by Edward Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cambridge, Part two. Meanwhile, other threads and clues of life were developing. Up to my degree, January eighteen sixty eight, I had lived singularly apart from any intellectual or literary circles as an undergraduate my companions had mostly been boating men after my degree however i came naturally into a more literary society consisting partly of the younger fellows of colleges and partly of the more go-ahead students who had not yet taken their degrees one or two of the more thoughtful undergrads of my own college also leaned towards me i belonged to one or two little societies which used to meet and discuss literary or other topics to one of these which w k clifford organized i used after i became a curate to rush round on sunday evenings after church in time to take part in the reading of mazzini's duty of man illustrated by plentiful accompaniment of claret cup and smoke Clifford was a kind of Socratic presiding genius at these meetings, with his satyr-like face, tender heart, wonderfully suggestive paradoxical manner of conversation, and blasphemous treatment of the existing gods. He invented just at that time a kind of inverted doxology, which ran, O Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we wonder which we hate the most be hell which they prepared before their dwelling now and evermore and his influence combined with that of mazzini was certainly part of my education at that period if it had by any chance come to the bishop's ears that i attended these meetings there is little wonder about his hesitation to ordain me there was another cambridge heretic with whom i not unfrequently consorted locke of kings who certainly by his attainments and ability ought to have been made a fellow of the college but his views and the audacity with which he ventilated them proved a fatal obstacle having to write a varsity prize poem he sat up all the preceding night to do it worked himself up into a kind of prophetic frenzy and managed under cover of a forecast of republican utopianism to introduce the lines since they traded in holy things and treated the people like beasts the priests shall be slain and the king shall be drowned in the blood of the priests i don't feel so certain of the exact words of the first line as i do of the second but I hope the author of both, who was then, of course, an undergraduate, will forgive my quotation of them. It is hardly to be wondered at that in those days he was not made a fellow. One of the undergraduates of my own college, with whom I made quite a friendship at this time, was Anthony Beck. He came up to Cambridge a poor student from the country district of Castle Rising in Norfolk, on the shores of the wash he also with his head full of rhymes and verses which he had written since he was a boy of eight or ten to the wonderment and delight of his widower father 
who prophesied in no uncertain tone a nook in westminster abbey for his poet's son beck was a bright capable fellow with a slight stoop and a stammer and a good-humoured way of laughing at his own oddities he took the university by surprise by carrying off in his first year the prize poem on dante having been fain it is said to work up the subject by reading carey's translation which he could not afford to buy on the bookstalls then he wrote another prize poem on runnymede which delighted him chiefly i think on account of a misprint which occurred in the printed copy there was an eloquent passage in the poem describing the sunrise of freedom in england and something about the clouds heralding the approach of morning streaks rosy-tinted vanward of the sun which the printer in a materialistic mood altered into stakes rosy-tinted vanward of the sun these rosy-tinted stakes gave beck i believe as much pleasure as he got from all the kudos of his poetic success he worked away at classics took a good first class and ultimately became a fellow and tutor of the college but his vein of poetic feeling and romance possibly too soon ripe ran itself out and he never carried on this line of production or published anything his mind perhaps from the same cause took on a slightly cynical cast he lapsed into the ordinary channels of lecturing and coaching then married and had a large family and so gave himself up to the workaday routine of college life at the time i mention he and i chummed together a good deal indeed there was a touch of romance in our attachment we compared literary notes went abroad together once or twice and after he was made a fellow had rooms adjoining each other and spent many and many an evening in common he became a favorite in the general society of the younger dons and b a s on account of his brightness naturalness and frankly avowed enjoyment of the good things of life as for myself for a couple of years or so after my degree i entered with great zest into this academically intellectual existence these chit-chat societies these little supper parties these lingerings over the wine in combination room after dinner where every subject in heaven and earth was discussed with the university man's perfect freedom of thought and utterance but also with his perfect absence of practical knowledge or of intention to apply his theories to any practical issue it was helpful no doubt especially as a solvent of old ideas and prejudices but after a time it began to pall upon me and bore me there was a vein of what might be called painful earnestness in my character these talking machines were many of them very obnoxious to me and then of what avail was the brain when the heart demanded so much and demanding was still unsatisfied looking back i think with regard to this last mentioned matter 
that the fault was probably a good deal on my own side strong as had been two or three attachments of this and my earlier undergraduate period and deeply as they had moved me to a degree indeed which i should be almost ashamed to confess yet for the most part owing to my reserved habits and the self-repressive education i had received combined with the fatuities of public opinion i consumed my own smoke and did not give myself the utterance i ought to have given by concealing myself i was unfair to my friends and at the same time suffered torments which i need not have suffered as i have already said during the time shortly after my degree i scribbled a great deal in verse form merely as an outlet to my own feelings and without much attention to conventionalities of style and rhythms though of course along the ordinary lines of versification but now came my introduction to the poet who was destined so deeply to influence my life it was in the summer of sixty eight i believe though it may have been sixty nine that one day h d war one of the fellows of trinity hall and a very brilliant and amusing man came into my room with a blue covered book in his hands william rossetti's edition of whitman's poems only lately published and said carpenter what do you think of this i took it from him looked at it was puzzled and asked him what he thought of it well he said i thought a good deal of it at first but i don't think i can stand any more of it with those words he left me and i remember lying down then and there on the floor and for half an hour poring pausing wondering i could not make the book out but i knew at the end of that time that i intended to go on reading it in a short time i bought a copy for myself then i got democratic vistas and later on after three or four years leaves of grass complete from that time forward a profound change set in within me i remember the long and beautiful summer nights sometimes in the college garden by the riverside sometimes sitting at my own window which itself overlooked a little old-fashioned garden enclosed by gray and crumbling walls sometimes watching the silent and untroubled dawn and feeling all the time that my life deep down was flowing out and away from the surroundings and traditions amid which i lived a current of sympathy carrying it westward across the atlantic i wrote to whitman obtained his books from him and occasional postcardial responses but outwardly and on the surface my life went on as usual what made me cling to the little blue book from the beginning was largely the poems which celebrate comradeship that thought so near and personal to me i had never before seen or heard fairly expressed even in plato and the greek authors there had been something wanting so i thought if there had only been those few poems 
they would have been sufficient to hold me but there were other pieces there was crossing brooklyn ferry out of the rocked cradle president lincoln's funeral hymn and the prose preface and then afterwards democratic vistas on the whole at that time i thought most i believe of the prose writings democratic vistas was a mine of new thought both this and the little blue book i read over and over again and still they were new i had read a great deal of wordsworth about the time of my degree then shelley captivated and held me for a long time portions of plato and of shakespeare i had read repeatedly but never had i found anything approaching these writings of whitman's for their inexhaustible quality and power of making one return to them yet all this time or for three or four years i believe my interest in them was mainly intellectual that is they were producing an intellectual ferment in me but i had not distinctly come into touch with the dominant individuality behind them nor felt that they were reshaping my moral and artistic ideals this is partly shown by the fact that i continued all these years and up to seventy-four or so writing verse along the usual lines and upon the usual subjects wordsworth's tintern abbey and shelley's adonis and prometheus still ruled my artistic and emotional conceptions and withal living as i was in an atmosphere of literary criticism and finesse mere academic technique seemed to me a great matter and i made great struggles to attain to it though i was not particularly successful in these efforts toward the conventional in literature yet i have no doubt they were very helpful in giving me some sort of training in the power of handling words and rhythmical forms and it was a true instinct which led me through this instead of urging me to leap at once into the ocean of metrical freedom so difficult to navigate with success anyhow so it was that while in other things as well as in literature my inner scarcely conscious nature was setting outwards in a swift current from the shores of conventionality under the influence of its new genius into deeps it little divined my external self was still busy in a kind of backwater and working hard if by any means it might attain to a creditable or even a possible existence in these channels but by seventy one or seventy two i began to feel that continued existence in my surroundings was becoming impossible to me the tension and dislocation of my life was increasing and i became aware that a crisis was approaching in may of the former year i had taken a holiday and got away from cambridge in october i returned to my lecturing and college work but not to the church duties and all eighteen seventy two i continued on going through the daily round but in a torpid perfunctory manner 
feeling probably that i ought to throw it all up yet without the pluck to do so till i was fairly forced by the end of eighteen seventy two i was obviously ill and incapacitated and when i asked for leave of absence for a couple of terms it was readily granted my own object in asking so i put it to myself being to quite get away and for long enough to be able to estimate my position and future action fairly and deliberately the year seventy three was an important one for me feeling shattered and exhausted and with a big holiday before me i determined to go to italy it was a new life and i may almost say inspiration i spent two months in rome a month in the bay of naples and a month at florence i was alone still alone but the healing influence of the air and the sunshine were upon me amid the bright external life of the day and the rich records and suggestions of the past all the questions which had been tormenting me faded away i thought about them no more but new elements came into my life which decided them for me the greek sculpture had a deep effect the other things pictures architecture etc interested me much from an historical or aesthetic point of view but this had something more a germinative influence on my mind which adding itself to and corroborating the effect of whitman's poetry left me as it were the seed of new conceptions of life the marvellous beauty and cleanliness of the human body as presented by the greek mind the way in which the noblest passions of the soul the tender pitying love of diana for endymion the haughty inspiration of juno the heroic endurance of the fallen warrior the childlike gladness of the fawn were united and blended with the corporeal form or rather scarcely conceived of as separated from it the emotional atmosphere which went with this the greek ideal of the free and gracious life of man at one with nature and the cosmos so remote from the current ideals of commercialism and christianity to become aware of all this in the midst of that delicate air and delightful landscape and climate of italy was indeed a new departure for me there are magnificent fragments of greek sculpture in the british museum not forgetting the priceless frieze of the parthenon things which to a skilled artistic eye are as suggestive as any that can be found but to me the great range and completeness of the italian galleries the almost perfect cupids fauns venuses athletes warriors youths maidens sages gods in unending procession under that southern sky gave a poetic impulse which i could not at any rate at that time have surmised from a broken marble scene in a london fog nor must i omit as part of the greek impression a visit to the temples of paestum 
which helped to give a habitation in the mind's eye to those strings of sculptured figures exiles in alien rome and to intensify the sense of harmonious life and divine proportion which they had excited i stayed in italy long enough to see at florence the fireflies skim and flicker over the blossoming wheat fields of may and june and then returned home to find that without worrying about it a change had taken place in my mental attitude which would make my return to cambridge life impossible and here i must not omit to mention another influence which played a large part in the shaping of my life at this time most men own a deep debt to women's influence in the ordering and guidance of their lives i cannot say that i have felt this with the exception of my mother and one other person i cannot remember a single case in which a woman came to me as a strong motive force or inspiration or as a help or a guide in doubt or difficulty perhaps on the emotional side women did not supply what i needed while on the intellectual side a woman with decisive originative authentic mind is certainly not often to be met with such a woman however of the latter type was the person to whom i allude and whom i may call olivia which indeed was one of her christian names she was a connection by marriage with one of my sisters a woman about fifty still retaining traces of an exceedingly handsome youth married but separated from her husband artistic to the fingertips brought up in italy and loving the south hating everything british and philistine and commercial detesting the bible and religion she had fought her way through social odium and disability and then through severe illness and suffering till she was but the wreck she used to say of her former self nevertheless a remarkable fire and enthusiasm still survived in her and though one of those natures who see everything rather violently black or white yet the decisive artistic quality of her mind was most refreshing and inspiring i have given some general account of her life and character in a separate sketch sufficient to say here that her conversations on literature and art her criticisms of art work and of my own efforts her views on marriage on religion though we disagreed a thousand times and often saw things from opposite points were most helpful to me they served to liberate my mind corrected in many respects the native vagueness of my thought and certainly helped me greatly on the road to choose my own way in life i find a scrap of a letter from her written during this period of my suffering and doubt as to my continuance at cambridge and in the church quote, i ought not to write this morning caro mio i am too depressed it is terrible to me to know how you suffer your letter last night made me cold to the finger ends one thing is clear anyhow your present life is intolerable change it you must when you get away from the depressing influence of your present life with all its worries you will breathe 
and clap your hands and thank God. End quote. It is needless to say that my move to Italy and my preparations for abandoning orders were things truly after her own heart. And now, for the first time, I seriously entertained the idea of taking to literature as a profession. I saw that my Cambridge career was at an end, and that I must do something else, and for a time, though only for a short time, it appeared to me that I might make a living by writing. I believe I felt that I really had something to write, that I must write, though certainly my mind and purpose was only vague as yet. And as to the professional side of the question, though I realized, I only partly realized, how difficult it would be to make writing of any kind pay. There were plenty of candid friends, however, to impress that upon me, and I well remember the derisive chorus of the other fellows which greeted, at some college meeting or other, the announcement of my intention. I stayed at home at Brighton during the summer and autumn, and gathered my verses, those more careful and academic productions which I had perpetrated in the late years, together in a volume for publication, of course no publisher would take the volume at his risk and i was content after a few efforts to pay the piper myself for the pleasure of seeing the work in print and on the chance of its leaping to a world-wide success the book under the title narcissus and other poems was published in november eighteen seventy three and needless to say fell practically dead a few notices mostly depreciatory in the papers a few copies bought by friends and then it ceased to stir nor was there any reason why it should stir there was nothing of any moment in the book only a vague sentiment of nature and humanity running through not definite enough at any point to carry weight and really not so much of the author's own self in it as of his effort to reach a certain literary standard. Perhaps one of the best of the pieces, both in form and intention, was The Artist to His Lady, which I remember expressed in its indefinite way the dominant feeling which I had those last years of being drawn away from my surroundings by another ideal than that which I could realize at Cambridge of the other pieces the carpenter and the king an extract from an unfinished revolutionary drama of which the scene was laid in austria and italy in eighteen forty eight indicates a certain advance in political ideas and the germ of future developments while the angel of death and life contains in embryo some of the dominant conceptions of towards democracy it so happened that at the time of publication of narcissus in november seventy three i was at cannes in the south of france whither i had gone with my sister lizzie to whom i was much attached on account of her illness i stayed two or three weeks and then it became necessary for me to return home in order to make preparations for and be present at our college fellows meeting at christmas 
it had of course become quite imperative that i should make some distinct announcement of my intentions with regard to the future and for my part i had now quite decided that i would relinquish my orders and go through the legal formalities of unfrocking myself sincerely i hoped that this would lead to my disappearance from cambridge if before i had recoiled from such a thought the torpor and misery i had experienced since then had quite altered my point of view and in all this matter it was not by any means only the clerical difficulty that troubled me as i have hinted before i had come to feel that the so-called intellectual life of the university was to me at any rate a fraud and a weariness these everlasting discussions of theories which never came anywhere near actual life this cheap philosophizing and ornamental cleverness this endless book learning and the queer cynicism and boredom underlying all impressed me with a sense of utter emptiness the prospect of spending the rest of my life in that atmosphere terrified me and as i had seemed to see already the vacuity and falsity of society life at brighton so in another form i seemed to see the same thing here and now it dawned upon me that my abandonment of orders instead of being a thing to be dreaded would be my veritable deliverance and would provide just that valid excuse for breaking with my old life which otherwise might prove hard to find when friends relations fellows of the college and others were all urging upon me the folly of committing professional suicide i felt that the argument of conscience though not really to myself the final and convincing thing since that was necessity was one which i could make use of and which i should have to make use of since every one whether i liked it or not would credit me with it i therefore to avoid all possible lapses or failures that might ensue if i left the matter over to a personal explanation at the college meeting wrote beforehand to the master of trinity hall explaining that i had entirely made up my mind to formally relinquish my orders and placing my fellowship in his hands in accordance with what i supposed would be necessary under the circumstances then two or three weeks afterwards i followed in person to join in the christmas festivities at that time every year at the christmas season not only did all the fellows assemble for the transaction of college business at our meetings but there was a week of dinner parties with often fifty or sixty guests each evening no women and very serious junketings this was of course in commemoration of the founder of the college and with money partly left for the purpose we sat down to dinner a most extensive one at six o'clock which lasted with the passing of the loving cup and the serving of wine and dessert till about eight then we adjourned to the combination room to take coffee and to chat for an hour 
after which the elder men generally resolved themselves into whist parties while the younger would retire in batches to college rooms in order to smoke and drink brandies and soda soon after ten supper was served and returning to the combination room one found a table spread with the traditional boar's head supplemented by oysters game pie and other little delicacies in order to stimulate the exhausted powers bottled stout was found useful at this period some of the old hands did no scant justice to the supper others remained at the whist tables finally and as the coup de gras about eleven thirty hot milk punch and roast apples appeared it was generally the duty of the younger fellows to look after the ceremonies a little to arrange the whist parties invite the guests to supper and ply them with meat and drink i remember one evening somewhat past midnight finding the mayor of cambridge who had been invited by himself in a remote corner discussing a roast apple i went and got a good big glass of milk punch and brought it him saying now mr mayor i'm sure this will do you good but he waved it away with a comical gesture replying no no more i can't drink any more thank you but this apple is delicious shortly afterwards leaning on my arm he was to be seen carefully descending the stairs to his carriage my feelings at this particular christmas were of rather a mixed kind as to the fellows they were berating me of one accord for my madness in writing to the master and practically resigning my fellowship before it proved needful to do so also for my supposed quixotism in troubling about my orders as to the dean being of course in orders himself he made short work of the difficulty it is all such tomfoolery he said that it doesn't matter whether you say you believe in it or whether you say you don't look at my sermons in chapel now are they not models of unaffected piety you let the matter drop and it will all blow over among the fellows and members of my own and other colleges with whom at that time i was often in contact were henry fawcett afterwards postmaster general henry latham tutor of trinity hall charles wentworth dilke w k clifford george darwin robert romer afterwards lord justice lumley smith henry fielding dickens augustine birrell edward beck present master of trinity hall and others of course most of these though not all did their best from their different points of view to dissuade me from the course i had embarked on but i was not going to be dissuaded it was obvious to me that half measures would be no good and that if i wanted to make my escape from cambridge i must throw the whole thing overboard so underneath all the unpleasantness there was the secret satisfaction of feeling that unknown to everybody i was really going to gain a point instead of lose one what kind of debates they had in college meeting over my case i don't know for of course i was not present 
but it was conveyed to me that though there was a general wish that i should stay on as before yet if i persisted in relinquishing my orders it would be doubtful if i could be asked to remain in the college owing to the scandal of the thing as to the question whether my relinquishment of orders should involve the loss of my fellowship that was adjourned for the present so again next term i did not rejoin but remained at home at brighton occupied with another important literary project moses a drama early one morning i had woken from sleep in the midst of a heavy thunderstorm with an extraordinarily vivid conception i don't know how it came to be there of moses on the top of sinai then and there i wrote out a long soliloquy act two scene one which now insisted on expanding itself into a considerable poem in dramatic form the ruling idea being to take the bible story treat it in a rationalistic way as an obscure tradition of an actual event and to show moses as a noble but entirely human reformer embarrassed in his great enterprise more by the apathy stupidity and superstition of the people he desired to save than by anything else meanwhile through solicitors i set the ecclesiastical law in operation with a view to my unfrockment the process takes six months for its completion it was not necessary for me to see my bishop again but i had one or two gravely regretful letters from him i spent the long at cambridge july and august the last long that i spent there and during that time received the legal document which rendered me once again a layman these summer vacations spent at cambridge were the part of my university life that even from my undergraduate days i had most enjoyed chapels and lectures were in abeyance the monotonous tyranny of boating practice and training was unknown a few students only were up perhaps twenty or so at our college but these would be the more intelligent and congenial spirits during the long morning from nine to two one got through a lot of reading unhindered by lectures and other interruptions then came afternoons canoeing up the river two or three together in the dreamy sheen of the water and the overhanging willows or through beds of iris or bathing or playing fives or rackets or walking the country lanes or sitting long on some turfy bank with a friend sometimes we would make quite a party and go a fleet of canoes with provisions far up the river and not return till dark then as a rule there were two or three hours more work in the evening though sometimes this was broken through by some little entertainment what a curious romance ran through all that life and yet on the whole with few exceptions how strangely unspoken it was and unexpressed this succession of athletic and even beautiful faces and figures what a strange magnetism they had for me and yet all the while how insurmountable for the most part was the barrier between it was as if a magic flame dwelt within one burning burning 
which one could not put out and yet whose existence one might on no account reveal how the walks under the avenues of trees at night and by the river sides were haunted full of visionary forms for which in the actual daylight world there seemed no place yet as time went on i think it must have become clearer to me that cambridge never would afford in this direction the actual that i wanted expectation grew dry at the fount and torpor and distress in the last year or two took the place of the romance of the years before somehow i think i must have dimly understood that the trouble arose partly from a deep want of sympathy between myself and the whole mental attitude mode of life and ideals of the university and of the gilded or silvered youth who lived and moved within it for i remember that on the memorable journey from caen homewards when i was revolving the whole situation the abandonment of my orders and fellowship the failure as it already appeared of my first literary venture and the doubt of what i should or could do in the future it suddenly flashed upon me with a vibration through my whole body that i would and must somehow go and make my life with the mass of the people and the manual workers it was in pursuance of this last idea that shortly after the eventful college meeting above mentioned i went to see james stewart at trinity who was just then organizing the first outlines of the university extension lecturing scheme and asked him if he could find me a place on it he agreed to do so and suggested that i should take the subject of astronomy i consented and shortly after was appointed to begin a course of lectures in october eighteen seventy four at leeds halifax and skipton end of part two of chapter three